Chapter 4, Delve. My escape came from Facebook. A comment on a post in a group called OG35. Brilliance, eloquence, insight, wisdom, maturity. I clicked on the profile pic and was floored for the second time in my life. The man in that picture had walked out of my dreams into flesh. The perfect face, the perfect body, absolute perfection. I inboxed him, left my number. He replied with his. I saw his text an hour later, called, and we spent five hours on the phone. The muse and I had sat at a lunch meeting the next day, then watched a movie, date 35. I didn't ask my four questions. I didn't even remember they existed. The sun was bright in the sky, high noon, as we walked towards each other on the sidewalk outside a downtown movie theater. He was still perfect. Bronze, muscled calves like works of art. We stood before each other and kissed before we even said hello. My hand slid into his and we walked into the mall, grabbed some Chipotle, and sat. I felt lucky to be there with him. Just sitting next to him felt like winning the lottery. The food was horrible. I barely ate a bite. The movie was a blur. I just felt his hand in mine and was happy. We went to his place, a crammed with too much shotgun house on a too narrow street, passed down to him from his deceased parents. I hated it. His window unit kept his room cool. The rest of the house, including the bathroom, was stifling. The most unromantic date I'd ever been on. The best date I'd ever been on. I didn't go home till 10. We talked and cuddled and kissed all day. It was a kind of conversation you didn't even know you wanted to have. Didn't even know you could have. Raw, real, revealing. It was a nakedness I didn't know I'd longed for. Didn't know I needed. But once I felt it, I was hooked. I wanted to know everything, to share everything, to experience everything with this man. This man who felt like my best friend, my soulmate, my fantasy all rolled into one in all of two days. People always ask on social media, do you believe in love at first sight? Before that day, that walk down the sidewalk, that glimpse of his profile pic, I would have said no. Now, I only have one answer. Yes. I've experienced it. I nicknamed him the Muse. Gatsby did not come to mind once. When I left the muse as I called Gatsby, I told him what had happened briefly, the experience feeling too magical to divulge details. One Facebook post, one direct message, one number exchange, one date. A decision I would stop seeing Gatsby and see the muse. It was 2016. Gatsby had been in my life a year, May 2015 through May 2016. I walked away believing the muse was the man I had waited all my life for, the man of my dreams, Mr. Wright, him. I didn't think about Gatsby, his shock, surprise, abandonment, how he must have felt betrayed, led on, lied to. If I had thought about it, I would have thought I told him we could never be together all the time. He had to expect me to leave. In fact, if I had thought deeper, I'd have thought that he and I had been set free. The spell over us was finally broken. He could find someone who accepted his size, living situation, and life on the road. And I could have a man with no reason to stand me up, no conflicted feelings about wanting me. 
The muse was our escape clause. By the second time the muse and I saw each other, we were in a relationship. We talked every day. I was on summer break from school. He called me any spare moment as he drove his company vehicle, his only vehicle. Once again, a man who had not met my standards, he had no car. And the Houston heat I experienced in his home, I didn't understand how he could live there. You couldn't cook or even use the restroom without sweating buckets. That first week, I thought I'd made a mistake. He saw something that needed to be fixed and couldn't or wouldn't do it. He reminded me of my ex-husband who had been in denial about his impotence. Then I came over and the muse had bought a whole house air conditioning. I was floored, stunned. He wasn't an excuse maker. He was a doer. We spent each weekend together, working out, me helping him work on his house, going on day trips, exploring new restaurants, tourist locations. Having been married to two homebodies, I'd never been anywhere. Now, I was everywhere. He bought me just because gifts. I was in love, love. He was out of my league. So sexy, so suave, so worldly. His previous career as a photographer left him with a portfolio of thousands of photos, some of celebrities. He'd attended places and events I'd only seen on TV. He was glamorous, debonair, brilliant, thoughtful, and the third worst lover I'd ever had. I was so in love that I cried about it when I was alone and ignored it when we were together. Fate seemed cruel. It gave me the best lover I'd ever had in the body of a man I couldn't commit to. And the man that I fell in love with at first sight had no rhythm, no stroke, no stamina, no skills at all. I tried to teach him, coach him. It was pointless. For the second time in my life, I accepted that I would have basically a sexless relationship. But this time was different. If that was the 20% I had to sacrifice, the 80% made the compromise seem like a fair bargain. I had never felt so alive, so me. I only needed to mention I wanted something, and I had it. The part of me that I had buried, the writer, she was peeking out from the dungeon. As a child, I'd vented on paper that was safer in my dad's authoritarian household. My journals had been my sanctuary. My first husband had read them all, mocking me, misinterpreting what I wrote. I'd poured my virginal lust on paper instead of acting on it, but he didn't believe that. He believed I'd slept with every man I fantasized about, that what was only imagination and fantasy was step-by-step -step reality. I threw away my journals. My poetry, they felt sullied and beyond repair. And when I remarried, I still found it hard to find that place of complete transparency where my words flowed onto the page. The muse was intrigued by me being a published poet, though I couldn't show him my publishing credits. I'd written in the two years between marriages, but not once till my second divorce. Once my first husband felt I was spending too much time reading, so I came home from work one day and he had taken all my books and set them outside on the patio where the rain had drenched them from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. I did not have a single book left intact. 
and the copies of my three publications were there. Sodden clumps of pulp, like a handful of mud in my fingers. Dating the muse, I started to write again. I finished this whole book and tried to come back to elaborate on that sentence, but I can't. I do not have the words to describe what coming back to writing was like after 11 years away from it. I don't have the words to explain what feeling safe was like as a writer, a thinker, after spending 16 years of my life not doing one thing that made me who I am. So I simply stated again, dating the muse, I started to write again. On February 19, 2016, I wrote, he started calling me his Zen. That's the third time in my life I've been called that in college, at work, and now in my relationship. I want to perform as Zen. Zen. I like the name. Unflappable, unperturbed, immovable, unfazed by applause or rejection. Centered, complete. I signed up for an open mic as Zen. We went. They applauded my first performance good-naturedly. She's a virgin, the host had said, and we love virgins because virgins are always tight, the audience answered. I smiled, then read my poem, Blue Water, Green Tree. I'm an English teacher, an expressive reader, dramatic even, but I'd never experienced this. The silent bated breath, the eyes, the nods, the smiles, the feeling was electric, the compliments unexpected, The muse captured it on film and then drove me to his house raving, more excited than any man, any person had been about anything I had ever done in my life. I watched him, my cheerleader, feeling so proud of me. I felt proud of myself. I felt with him at my side, I could do anything. I had a binder of rejection letters from college in the two years between my marriages, a binder full to get Three, acceptances. I wanted to earn his pride again to justify his faith once more. I started submitting and got accepted again, 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 10 times in 10 months. I'd been accepted three times in 45 years. He was my muse. I began working on a book. He designed some chapter illustrations. Then he became inspired. He wanted to make more money. How could he do it? What could he do? We brainstormed, came up with cybersecurity. He needed a computer for the class. I gave him my son's barely used one. He was on his way. I wanted him to get a car also. Being a chauffeur had begun to wear on me. I found him one, cheap, reliable. He bought it. By the time he sprung on me that we were incompatible, I'd helped him complete a class that tripled his pay and inspired him to get an air conditioner and find a car. Now, I was the one shocked, surprised, abandoned, feeling betrayed, led on, lied to. We'd exchanged keys to cars and houses, talked about marriage. I'd even accepted our abysmal sex life. If that was the price for this synergy where both of us were making money, living our dreams, if that's what it took to be one half of this power couple, I would pay that pound of flesh. I'd passed my biggest test a month before. Gatsby had called out of the blue. His name and number were still saved on my phone, and I had accepted the call. We had talked, a poignant conversation walking down memory lane. 
I remembered our passion and wanted it badly, needed it badly, sex-starved for the second time in my life. But I had told him not to call me again and deleted his name and number. I had chosen my bed and I was going to lie in it. And regardless of the dismal sex, I'd been happy to luxuriate in this bed. This sanctuary made me feel safe to be fully, vulnerably me. The writer, the thinker, the creative, the artist, this side of me that I had never shown anyone, not even myself, in its full glory. She was here. She was thriving. He was why. Axis. Who knew when I met you that you would shift my orbit? My rotation would stop, envelop you, then resume with you at the center, my foundation, my inspiration, and that I would be magnetized, energized, galvanized by your presence, your thought, your word. Every moment emblazoned on my psyche, your essence key to my proliferation. I sit here reaching for you, but you're not here. No answers, no respite, no recourse. My axis is gone. So I couldn't believe the last week of my relationship with the muse. I'd met him before Mother's Day in the year after his mother and father died, separately, but consecutively, one after the other. His parents followed each other into the afterlife like a modern-day Romeo and Juliet. He was grieving, lost. Some days, holidays, special days, he was so depressed, it was scary, I got him through Mother's Day, Father's Day, their birthdays, their anniversary, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Memorial Day, Valentine's. And when my grandmother began to die, he broke our pattern of spending Saturday together and took me home crying and left me there crying alone. I was the one shocked, surprised, abandoned, feeling betrayed and used. I'd never needed him emotionally before. And when I did, he wasn't there. And... As far as our incompatibility, it was only sexual, and I was the one suffering. He called himself sexually reserved, said he put his sex drive on pause after his divorce and couldn't seem to really restart it. So I was the one horny, unsatisfied, and he was probably mortified, but I had stopped trying to have sex at all. He disappeared three days. This man I had talked to every day for 10 months and then told me we were incompatible and our relationship was over, and then disappeared for six days. Wouldn't return my calls or texts. He blocked me from his social media. He still had my keys. I still had his stuff at my house. I packed it up, and on the seventh day, Sunday, drove to his house just as the sun was rising. He was coming out of his house, wouldn't let me in. We exchanged keys, and that was that except for the slight flicker of pain on his face, not another word. Oasis. In your desert, I planned to be the hidden spring that you could sip from, a cactus leaf with nectar to quench your parched throat. In your storm, I vowed to be the eye, the calm, the center, the lighthouse keeping you on track away from the reefs and breakers. In your turmoil, I sought to be the cool washcloth, the hand on the shoulder. I sought to be the rainbow after the flood. I was all this. I expected all this. I got a canteen, an umbrella, and a cold shoulder in return. Six days and nights of silence as I trudged barefooted through a wasteland. 
A turmoil of questions sandstormed my path. In my raging sea, you left me to drown. My editor said the format of this poem was different from all the others. She's right. It begins with my expectations. Three stanzas, three promises, three goals, and what I felt would be my reciprocation. Then the separation, the isolation. The lines can't follow each other, single file, because each was a separate realization and epiphany of its own, a separate betrayal and devastation. My poetry will not be consistent. It was not written for this book or for an audience. It was written to release the ache within, and its form will vary with the intent and the content. The last Sunday we spent together, we'd gone to church. Ironically, I was the one who started us going. He hadn't been in years. I was craving spirituality, looking for something deeper, and religion had been where I'd gone before. But like the sex I had with the muse, the services were empty, barren, only a few flickers of connection, so faint as to almost seem like mirages. During the service, the pastor had mentioned fornication, which was totally off topic from the gist of the entire sermon. It was a non sequitur that I almost all but ignored. After church, the muse took me out to eat at my favorite place that he'd introduced me to and asked me, what did you think of the sermon? I shrugged. It was okay. Hypothetically, what would you think about us becoming abstinent, like the pastor said? I smirked. A half-hearted laugh erupted, soft, angry, and bitter. If I'd wanted to be abstinent, I would have stayed married. I was silent, seething. Sex had been the thing that had turned my marriage from loving and perfect to distant and cold. At its end, I spent each night lying next to a man who didn't touch me for eight months, didn't speak to me unless it was about the kids or the bills, didn't even look at me. The man who had unilaterally decided, then announced our sex life was over and I needed to adjust. The man who had told me I was selfish because I wanted him to get examined by a doctor when he was clearly uncomfortable talking about this problem he wouldn't even name. Me. The muse had just asked me if I would voluntarily choose abstinence. How could he even form those words? Over lunch, in public, in casual conversation, as if the lack of a sex life hadn't changed my entire life. If I could have just done without it, we wouldn't even be sitting there eating Cajun pasta and breadsticks. I would be happily married and abstinent. He didn't know me at all. Yet he was offended I didn't want to hear his reasoning. I couldn't hear his reasoning and still respect him. I knew sitting there our relationship was over, but I hadn't accepted it. I couldn't accept that I had made the same mistake again. When my ex-husband Drew became impotent, I learned where sex stood on his list of priorities. It was an option, dessert, not the main course, totally skippable. I hadn't known that dating, pre-marriage, even for the first two years. I hadn't known until he couldn't perform. And it was suddenly stripped from the menu of services offered in my husband's establishment. And I was told I could accept it. 
or I could find another provider just as long as I was discreet and respectful of our home. Now, my boyfriend had stopped speaking to me for three days because I laughed at him when he was being serious and because I didn't listen to his reasoning on abstinence. I couldn't listen. He had just shoved an ice pick into the deepest wound in my heart without even batting an eye. I had thought I could have love and sex and compatibility and inspiration all in one place with this man in our relationship. And now I realize I hadn't ever asked what role sex would play in our relationship, how important it was to him. If it was a priority, I had assumed it was. I was wrong. Nevertheless, I had no regrets regarding the time spent with the muse. I'd learned I could love again, believe again, trust again, and I had 10 publishing credits. In fact, the day that the muse broke up with me, my poem, Monopoly of Marriage, debuted in Jonah Magazine. I was once again not the woman who had begun this relationship. I was transformed. Transformation is an amazing thing. It's a major topic of this book, and I think it's about time we deal with another significant topic, social contracts and philosophies or mindsets. I used to be a very religious person, though I would not have called myself that. I can best explain my mindset shift through a parable. Let's say there are two people, seeker one and seeker two. Both start out on a dimly lit path and move towards the light, which seems bright, warm, and welcoming. When Seeker One reaches the light, she builds a fortress to house that light, and it lights her whole house, her whole life. She becomes devoted to that light and would fight to protect that light from anyone or thing that might extinguish it. Seeker One is no longer a seeker, but has become a devotee, a devotee of the light of religion. Seeker two likewise finds a light, but in exploring the light, learns how to turn it off. And when it's turned off, Seeker two sees another light. Seeker two then realizes there are many lights and each one illuminates different landscapes, provides different experiences. Each one leads to more enlightenment. Seeker two knows that in pursuing the other light, she will have to walk away from the current light and go into partial darkness, semi-confusion, and maybe even frustration. But Seeker 2 is a philosopher, a lover, philo, of wisdom, soph. Security is not the goal. Exploration is. And the idea that one's life can be spent going from light to light, from landscape to deeper, higher, better landscape is thrilling and intoxicating and worth the effort and the search. For the first several decades of my life, I was the devotee. In the last second seven years, I became a full fledged seeker. That also meant that those lights that led me to see the foundation I had built my life upon, like the Rose Doctrine, were not laws and were not even morality. They were social constructs. Social constructs designed to keep me within the four walls devoted to one light, restricted to very limiting measures of my worth. A law is scientific. No one has to tell you what goes up comes down. You knew that before you ever learned the word gravity. Likewise, your conscience can guide you on morality, what brings you peace, what causes you inner turmoil. 
Social constructs are those ideas that have been accepted and pushed on others by members of society. For example, when I was growing up, the streets lights coming on meant I should be home. That's not a law. That's not morality. But ask someone 20 and younger what streetlights meant in their household and you might be met with a blank stare. Mores and norms have changed. So as you go through this book, you will see me come to grips with and often discard as harmful, repressive, and false social constructs I was raised with. For example, virginity is a fact. Losing virginity equaling the loss of value is a social construct. If a girl is riding a horse and gets jolted violently breaking her hymen, she does not fall to the ground and get up uglier. She may have no idea she no longer has a symbol of something prized in many societies. I hope as you read this book, you begin to delve. Lesson four, delve. Discuss what role sex will play in your relationship before committing. Dig, excavate, uncover what social constructs you've accepted as laws or as morality that aren't at all.